0: This sermon was preached by Ed Moore, head pastor of North Shore Baptist Church in Bayside, Queens. Ed is one of the founders of Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. North Shore Baptist Church has planted five churches since 2005. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.ns-bc.org. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Good morning. Turn to the book of 2 Corinthians, please, 2 Corinthians, chapter 5. Father in heaven, as we have spent much time already in your word today, and now as we continue to study and to learn and to contemplate who you are through your word i pray that our hearts would become very soft Uh, lord i pray that our minds would become very attentive and i pray lord that our wills would be very much inclined lord to know what it is that you would say to us today and lord may we have ears to hear lord may we delight in your son jesus christ we thank you lord for the doctrine of the Trinity. And now, Lord, as we study what perhaps is a complicated subject for some, I pray, Lord, that you would give us clarity. I pray that you would give me compassion, Lord, for the people to whom I speak, and passion for the subject. And Lord, I pray that this would be an act of worship. And so, Lord, give us understanding, and at the end of our study today, may we love Christ more than we have ever loved Him before, for it is in His name that we bring this prayer to you. Amen. Amen. Well, the title of my sermon today is God. God. Uh, That's a very foundational word for what we are doing here together today. Who is God is perhaps the most taken-for-granted question that we ever could ask. You see, there's an assumption when we use the name God that everyone knows who we are talking about. If I were to ask everyone to pull out their bulletin today and quickly write down the answer to the question, who is God, and then to give you five minutes to work on it, and then to collect your papers and to read aloud all of the answers, what would I be reading? Would some of the responses be unclear? Would some of them be ambiguous? Would some of them just be plain wrong? None of the responses would be exhaustive for who has known the mind of our God. No one's going to be able to write down everything about God. But one would hope in a church that professes to believe in God that the majority of the people would accurately be able to tell you who He is. Now, as I said, this is a very foundational topic. God. The best definition that has come to us in the past 1,500 years comes from the Athanasian Creed. I won't be reading all of it today. Uh, I'm going to read, though, a helpful portion of it. Listen as I read part of the Athanasian Creed. That we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is all one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Skipping down a little bit, it reads, So, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and yet they are not three gods, but one God. Skipping a little bit more, it reads, And in the Trinity, none is before or after another. None is greater or less than the other. But all three persons are co-eternal. So that in all things, as is aforesaid, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. He, therefore, that will be saved, must think thus of the Trinity. End quote. Now, you might not be able to state it as clearly and as thoroughly as that. I know that I myself would not be able to do that. But generally speaking, it is very important that you do understand that there is one God, and this one God exists in three distinct divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, much confusion arises when we hear the English word God and automatically assume that it is referring to God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. Now, sometimes that is the case. Sometimes when you read the word God, it is referring to God the Father. However, sometimes the English word God is referring to Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. And sometimes the English word God refers to the Holy Spirit the third person of the Trinity, and sometimes when we read the English word God, it is referring to all three members of the Trinity at the same time, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But even if one is able accurately to identify which member or members of the Trinity or the Godhead, and by the way, when someone uses the word Godhead, it's just a fancy way of saying the Trinity, the three in one, when someone is able to read the word God and to know which member or members of the Godhead to whom the English word God applies in all cases, you still cannot even begin to grasp the unfathomable mystery of the Trinity and every single attempt to present an analogy or an illustration which clarifies the mystery of the Trinity not only falls short but it actually will degenerate into heresies when they are carried out to their logical conclusion God is not going to be comprehended You've heard people say that the Trinity is like a three-leaf clover, or that the Trinity is like H2O. It's liquid water and ice solid and vapor gas, but it's all H2O. Or one man can be, at the same time, a father and a husband and a son. Those are not only bad analogies. These, if you take them to their logical conclusion, end up being heresies. If you would like to study this further, I will direct you to YouTube, and you can look up this video. It is called Lutheran Satire, Trinity, Bad Analogies. Lutheran Satire, Trinity, Bad Analogies. And you will find two very astute Irish theologians who can explain what I'm saying. But for our purposes today, what I would like us to do is to briefly explore how the members of the Trinity operate with reference to the doctrine of union with Christ. In other words, is union with Christ a Trinitarian doctrine? And if so, how important within the Godhead is the doctrine of union with Christ? But first, let me place this study of union with Christ in context. We are working our way through the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And we've come to chapter 5, verse 17. In this verse, we find a tiny little phrase, in Christ, in Christ. Listen as I read chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And a few weeks ago, I explained these verses in their context. And it means in context that one who is a new creation will evaluate ministers and ministries by a new standard. The old way of judging is gone. The new has come. And what is it that brings about this change of thinking, this paradigm shift in our minds, the change from the old to the new? Well, it is union with Christ, being joined to Christ, or as it is expressed so succinctly in this verse, in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? Now, this question has been captivating my thinking and my study for over a month now, due in large part to a book that my daughter Savannah gave me, by Marcus Johnson, entitled One with Christ. And we, as you know, have been studying it here in our Sunday morning worship gatherings for the past few weeks. The the, the question has captivated my thinking. Now, let's review what we studied last week. Last week, we did a Bible study on the doctrine of salvation. And we demonstrated from Scripture, repeatedly, using many, many texts, That every stage of our salvation, the salvation process, which begins in eternity past with election and moves all the way through to eternity future with glorification. And everything in between, from eternity past to eternity future, every element of our salvation is inseparably linked to the doctrine of union with Christ unconditional election, regeneration, effectual calling justification, adoption, sanctification and glorification all have union with Christ as a common thread that runs throughout an umbrella which overarches them and a foundation which undergirds them so here's the thinking which leads us to our message today If our salvation is so saturated with being joined to Christ, and we demonstrated last week that it is, if it is so saturated with being joined to Christ, does it not then stand to reason that the triune God who saved us would also, in and of himself, demonstrate and prioritize and communicate the preeminence of the doctrine? In other words, is the doctrine of union with Christ trinitarian is the doctrine of us the elect being joined to christ clearly trinitarian now once again i'm going to be relying heavily upon the research of marcus johnson who wrote the book one with christ to help me out and let me start off by giving you a very clear and a very succinct quote from him about the trinitarian aspect of union with christ johnson writes Because the Son is one with the Father, our being joined to the Son means that we are joined to the Father. And because the Spirit exists as the bond of communion between the Father and Son, He, speaking of the Spirit, brings us into that communion by uniting us to Christ. And I never saw this before. Even though I preached on the verse that I am about to tell you about as recently as last year during Good Friday, I never saw this before, but it 's clear in first peter three eighteen it says, "For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that or so that, or in order that he might bring us to God. What was the purpose of christ 's suffering?" For us, as unrighteous people, it is so that he might bring us to God. And this doesn't just mean that we are going to go to heaven when we die to be with God the Father. It means that we are brought into a union with the Father himself. Now this whole thing was before my very eyes, yet undetected. And this causes me to ask the question, how much more that is really clear and in clear view in the scriptures have I missed? Well, for now, I want you to listen to this quote from Jonathan Edwards as he so beautifully describes the Trinitarian nature of union with Christ. Edwards writes, There was, as it were, an eternal society or family in the Godhead in the Trinity of per- per- persons. It seems to be God's design to admit the church, that's you and me, the elect, the saved, to admit the church into the divine family of his son's wife, end quote. In other words, there's this beautiful heavenly family, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and for some reason, it seems as though God is incorporating us into this family. And it's more than, as I said, just a ticket into heaven. It is a vital union with a person. Now, we want to study this morning a little bit in John chapter 14. So I'll ask you please to turn to that chapter. Remember that this is spoken in the upper room. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. This is the night on which he was betrayed. He's giving them these final instructions. And I want you to notice here how the doctrine of union with Christ is, 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 has a Trinitarian aspect to it. We'll start in chapter 14 and verse 10. Jesus says, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? I have to be very honest with you. I've read these verses before. I think maybe even a time or two I have been assigned to speak on these verses before. But to be really honest with you, I have just breezed over them. I have skipped over them because I really didn't understand what does it mean that, that he is in the Father and that the Father is in him. And then the next verse, chapter 14, verse 11 Believe me that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me. Now there it is again. The union between the Father and the Son. It's foundational and it is undeniable. And if you grasp that, that that Jesus Christ the Son is distinct from God the Father, but yet they are in union with one another. Now you move on to what Jesus says later in the chapter, chapter 14, verse 20. He says, In that day, you, speaking of believers, those who are the elect, the disciples, and those that will come after the disciples, in that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. There's a union there. And then down to verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him. And we, who is the we there? We is the Father and the Son. And we will come to him and make our home with him. So you see that when we are linked to Christ, when we are in union with Christ, we are, by extension, in union with the Father. These these verses clearly state that there's a union between God the Father and Christ the Son. And when we are joined to Christ, we are also joined to the Father because he is joined to the Father. And so when you look at it that way and consider this verse, the most popular verse in John chapter 14, maybe one of the Two or three most popular verses in all the Bible. Does this whole concept of union with Christ, giving us union with the Father, make this verse, chapter 14, verse 6, more clear? Does it not give it more power? Does it not give it more flavor? Does it not give it more meaning when we read these words? I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Again, it is not just that we come to the Father in that we are getting a ticket to heaven. Although, in Christ, we will be in heaven and we will be with the Father. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. What he's saying is, when we are in union with Christ, that also puts us in a vital union with the Father. Why is it that we cannot be joined to the Father apart from Christ? Well, it's because God is holy and we are sinful, and because holy God cannot have intimate fellowship with guilty, sinful man. For God to join himself to us apart from Christ as we are with our sins unpaid would be impossible. So what does God do? He sends His Son to take on flesh. That is the incarnation. That is Christmas. It is so important in this doctrine of union with Christ. And when Jesus comes from heaven to earth and becomes a man, He does not cease to be God, but He takes upon Himself a fully human nature. And He becomes the God-man, Jesus Christ. 100% God and 100% man. And even though He never committed a sin... He takes our sins and he pays for them on the cross and he rises again on the third day. The gospel, even though we're studying this, the gospel is still of first importance. And what you need to know practically, and this is the most important thing that I will tell you today, is that now that our sins are paid for, guess what? They are paid for. And as such, we can be joined to a Holy Father. Why? Because our sins are gone and we possess the righteousness of Christ. In other words, Christ has brought us to God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. That is by union with me. And I've always understood that being in Christ gets me into heaven when I die. And that God the Father is no longer angry with me. I've always understood this, but what I did not grasp is that I now, by virtue of being joined to Christ, am also joined to the Father. Now, it is not a direct, unmediated union. Uh, Let me state that another way. You don't just get to be friends with God on your own, apart from Christ. And, And when people think that way, that that that, that uh, of of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man and 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 they start to think about our relationship with God not being mediated through Christ. It, it causes them indiscriminately, willingly, with warmth, probably their well-meaning and sentimentality, to say things like "God loves you" just indiscriminately to everybody. "God loves you" or "or God loves us all." No, He doesn't. He does not. He loves His Son. And He loves His elect who are in His Son. And He loves them, and He loves us, so much that He gave His Son to die for our sins. But apart from being joined to Christ, we are not loved by God. We are not in union with God. But because of Christ... It says in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 6, we are blessed in the beloved or, as it says in the New King James Version, we are accepted in the beloved. Who is the beloved? He is Jesus Christ. What does he do? He makes us accepted in the eyes of God. In other words, the doctrine of union with the Father has its basis in the doctrine of union with Christ. So now, as you are turning to John chapter 17, I want you to notice, and again, John chapter 17 is the same night as John chapter 14. It's probably not even an hour after John chapter 14. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer on the night in which he is betrayed. I want you to notice in John chapter 17... That because the Father is in union with the Son, Christ, and Christ is in union with us, therefore we are in union with the Father. Listen to Jesus' high priestly prayer, verses 21 through 23. That they, the they there is referring to his disciples and those who will come after his disciples, that is, you and me, if we are born again, that they may all be one. How? How? Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be, oh my goodness, look at this, in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. This is mind-blowing. Do you understand what Jesus is saying here? He's saying in his prayer to his Father, I want them to be one even as we are one. I and you and you in me. So then when we are joined to Christ, we are joined to the Father. When we are joined to the Father, we enjoy love. What kind of love? just sort of that we are Jesus' friend, and so because we're Jesus' friend, he's kind of going to let us in. No, it is deeper than that. Here's the intensity that the Father's love has for us. He loves us with the same love with which he loves his son. I cannot wrap my simple mind around this. This is jaw-dropping. This is world-changing. Do you understand the love that the Father has for the Son? No, you don't. You'll never be able to comprehend that. Never be able to comprehend that. But that is what Jesus says here, is the love that he has for us when we are in Christ. This is a vital union. Down to verse 26. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them And I in them. We are intertwined with the Father and the Son because we are joined to Christ. Now let's go back to the Athanasian Creed. Again, I I quote Our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man. And the next phrase says, God of the substance of the Father begotten before the worlds, and man in the substance of his mother, born in the world. Let me just stop right there. Every Christmas, we attempt to sing the second verse of O Come All Ye Faithful. In it, there are the most unsingable words in our entire hymnal. The words do not match up with the notes, but it is the most profound correct Theological statement that we have in our entire hymnal, and that is that Jesus is begotten, not created, very God of very God. Perfect God and perfect man. Of rational soul and human flesh subsisting. Again, you are not going to be able to say it as well as the Athanasian Creed and neither am am I, but do you understand that he is fully God and that he is fully man? And that as man, he comes and he can be united to us. And so when we get to the year, A.D. 451, to the Council of Chalcedon, And they come up with this idea of the hypostatic union of Christ. Don't let that word scare you. The word hypostatic just means personal, okay? It is the doctrine that Christ is one divine person with two natures, fully God and fully man. So it is the personal union of a divine nature and a human nature in the person of Christ okay? That's not just good theology. That's not just good church history. It is extremely practical. And let me explain to you why the hypostatic union is so practical. He, Jesus Christ, is one person, and we are united to him by faith. I think you've got that so far. How can we be united to him? It is because of his humanity. It is because of the incarnation. But when we are united to Christ in His humanity, we are not united to half of Him. We are united to all of Him. For He is one person, and to be united to Him is to be united to all of Him. And when we are united to Him in His humanity, we are united to God because of His deity, because in His deity He is united to the Father. And that's why we should always... Never hesitate to stress 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Why does it not say there is one God and, and one mediator between God and man, the God Christ Jesus? Because that would I guess theologically be correct because Jesus is God. The reason that we don't say that and the reason that Paul didn't say that is because we are joined to Christ in his humanity. It is the man Christ Jesus that brings us to God. He bore in his body our sins upon the tree. Now I think this goes without saying but I'm going to say it anyway. Being united to Christ and therefore, by extension, being united to the Father does not mean that we become God or become part of the Godhead. But I think you knew that. But if you want to go home today and someone asked, what did you learn in church today? You can tell them, well, I learned that I wasn't God. So that's that's nice to know. Now, by now in this study, and we are studying what today? We are studying the Trinity. You probably should be asking the question... What about the Holy Spirit? How does the Holy Spirit prioritize the doctrine of union with Christ? How does he function within the doctrine of union with Christ? Well, first of all, let me tell you how he does not function. Some people believe that because we who are saved are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that he is acting as a substitute for Jesus I mean, after all, Jesus is not here. Jesus is in heaven. And so they say that the Spirit is now here on earth as his representative or his replacement. Now that is a real misunderstanding of his ministry and a misrepresentation of the Holy Spirit's aim and goal. Let me again give you a quote from Mr. Johnson. To say that our union with Christ occurs by the power of the Spirit means that the Holy Spirit is himself the bond who unites us to the living Christ. Christ sent the Spirit, not so that we might have a roughly suitable replacement in his absence, but that we might enjoy the actual presence of Christ through the Spirit. Now, what I'm about to give you is probably a bad analogy. I hope it is not a heretical analogy, but it's probably a bad analogy in that it will break down in some ways. But hopefully, it will add some clarity, and maybe this will help to illustrate the point. Some people believe that the work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit is sort of like a tag-team wrestling duo, where one is in the ring, and then all of a sudden he comes over to the ropes Tags his partner, and then the partner can get in the ring. And so people view it this way. Jesus has done his work. He has been born. He has come to earth. He has died. He's risen again. He ascends up to heaven. And what does he do when he gets to heaven? He tags the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit now comes as his replacement. That is wrong. See if this sounds familiar. This is wrong. Thank you, O my Father, for giving us your Son... And leaving your spirit till the work on earth is done. Jesus is saying, I'll see you guys later. Goodbye, Holy Spirit, you're here and I'm out of here. It is not like that at all. I want to give you another illustration, and again, I just I I, I don't want to overplay this. There's probably many inconsistencies with this illustration. But nonetheless, I would like to to illustrate, I think, what perhaps is a more accurate representation of what is going on. Harry, I'd like you to stand, and for our purposes today, you are going to be God the Father. okay? And Charlie, you're going to stand, and you're going to be the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ. And you are one with the Father. You are linked to the Father. They are not two... Okay, that they are not two different gods, okay? they are two separate persons, all right <clears throat> now, Molly, i'd like you to stand and I want you to be you, okay? I want you to be you. I, for purposes of our illustration, am going to be the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to come to you and I am going to join you to the Son of God. Jesus Christ. I'm going to indwell you, but what I've actually done is I have joined you to Christ. What has happened now with the work of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit has joined us to Christ, and because Christ is joined to God, and Christ in his humanity mediates for us, but Christ in his deity relates to the Father, and the Holy Spirit joins us to Christ, what do we have? We have A Trinitarian project whereby union with Christ is the ultimate goal. There are a lot of inconsistencies in this, and if you want to tell me what they are, I will be happy to listen. But generally speaking, this is the work of the Spirit to join us to Christ. This is beautiful, I mean, just in and of itself. I mean, forget the illustration, this is just beautiful. All right, thank you. Listen again to this quote from Johnson as he explains the work of the Spirit in joining us to Christ. Christ's sending of the Spirit seems that means that through the indwelling of the Spirit, Christ is in us and we are in Him. Jesus did not send an alternative, but His very presence through the Spirit. Now I want to speak practically to you. I want to tell you when the Holy Spirit is not at work. The Holy Spirit is not at work when the emphasis is on the Holy Spirit. Anytime you hear about a Holy Ghost revival or you hear about some sort of moving of the Spirit whereby the Spirit is the emphasis in the moving, you know that the Holy Spirit is not in work. at work. Why? Because it is the job of the Holy Spirit to magnify Christ. That is not to say that we can't study the Holy Spirit. That is not to say that we should not worship the Holy Spirit. We must worship Him as God. But His job is to point us to Jesus Christ. John chapter 15 verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. John chapter 16, verse 14. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Do you see that the work of the Holy Spirit is to join us to Christ? Listen to this quote by J.I. Packer. He says the distinctive, constant, basic ministry of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant is to mediate Christ's presence to believers, end quote. But how is it that the Holy Spirit as it is at work in our union with Christ? Well, the illustration that Scripture gives us is baptism, immersion. The immersion of the Holy Spirit is a baptism into Christ. It is so important that you understand this. First of all, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For in one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. We were dipped, we were dunked, we were immersed into the body of Christ. How? By the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, dipped, dunked, immersed, not talking about water here, into Christ? Jesus were baptized into his death. And two verses later, Paul writes in Romans 6, 5, For if we were have been united, Wow, there it is, union with Christ. If we have been united with him in a death that is like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection that is like his. Do you see what's going on here? If we know that the Spirit is the one who is doing the baptizing, Hang on, it might be a little hard to grasp because it, it's, it, there's a chain of thoughts that's going on here, but, but try to grasp it. If we know that the Holy Spirit is the one who was doing the baptizing and that the baptizing is into Christ's death, and two verses later it's clear that baptism into Christ's death is synonymous with being united to Christ, we can say with absolute certainty that we are united to Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit. Put it all together and what do you have? Here's what we've learned today. There is one God who exists in three persons. The Father is united to the Son. The Spirit unites us to Christ. When that happens, we are united to the Father as well. One more quote from Johnson, speaking of the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, who conceived the incarnate Christ, also conceives us anew, causes us to be born again, if you will, by incorporating us into the One who is life in Himself. End quote. And so the triune God is working in perfect harmony And they are committed to our union with Christ. And so let's take the last two weeks and let's put them together. What did we learn last week? We learned that the totality of our salvation has as its undergirding, as the umbrella over it and the thread that runs through it, union with Christ. Everything about your salvation, all the way from election to glorification and everything in between, has a direct link to union with Christ. What did we learn today? We learned that there is one God who exists in three persons and that all three of those persons are working together in perfect concert and harmony to bring the elect into union with Christ. And when that happens, there is a benefit at the end, and that is that we are joined to our Heavenly Father and He then loves us as much as He loves His own Son. So whatever it means to be in union with Christ, you've got to know, just based upon the past two weeks, that it is really important. But somebody might be asking the question, what does it mean to be in union with Christ anyway? For an explanation of that, I read you an email that I received this week. This email came from our missionary, Pavel Steiger in Prague, Um, He and his wife, Clara, are serving there, and we've supported them for many years. Listen as I read you the email that I received this week. Dear Ed and Anna, this is Pavel Steiger of Prague. Last evening, I was listening to your sermon concerning union with Christ. Excellent (laughs) exclamation point. However, I was quite surprised that this doctrine is not frequently taught or understood stateside. After I was born again, I immediately understood the union with Christ, though I never used that fancy word, union. Ed, languages are intricate. In Czech, one cannot miss the union with Christ simply because of grammar. English does not decline nouns. It must solely bank on the preposition in- Czech, however, declines nouns. The sixth case is called in Latin local. Czech has it. It localizes the noun. Thus, where the English says in Christ, Czech says the Christu. See the ending you? No Czech can misunderstand it. It means locally inside Christ. Now, then he goes on to explain some things about grammar, which if I were to read them to you and try to pretend that I know what they mean, uh, I would seem more foolish than I already am. And so so there's just a lot of technical stuff in here that I, I don't have any idea what he's talking about. But he goes on at the end of the letter to get really practical, and I feel this has given me the most light that I have received in the last month. Here's what he writes. When I am writing or teaching, I usually say that we are baptized, dipped, immersed into Christ, just like a pickle in brine. Just as a pickle is saturated by brine, the same way we ought to be saturated by Christ. What a union. Noah had to be inside the ark. Just looking at it would not save him. Spiritual localization in Christ is similar to physical localization in a plane. I neither can fly 30,000 feet high nor move 600 miles an hour. Localized in a plane, I can do it. Not by my abilities, but by the plane's ability. Whatever the plane does... I do positionally. Similarly, in a spiritual sense, being inside Christ, being in union with Him, whatever He does, I do positionally. Not by my abilities, but by His ability. That's all I wanted to share with you. Thanks for all you do for us. That is your missions dollars hard at work. It is good to support a missionary like this, is it not? And so, as we have studied this, I don't know, maybe maybe you have understood these things for a long time, and this is just old to you, and, 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 and if that's the case, amen. I'm so glad you knew these things. I wish you would have shared them with me. But I have become captivated by this wonderful doctrine of union with Christ. And the more we study it, the more we delight in it, the more beautiful we see this doctrine is. But what's more is that the more I study this, the more beautiful Jesus Christ himself becomes. And so the question is not, do you understand what it means to be in union with Christ? The question is, are you in union with Christ? Boy, if you're not today, let, let me just say a word to you. We, we sang the song earlier today, make it clear and make it plain. Christ receiveth sinful men. Let me make it really clear and really plain. You are going to spend eternity somewhere. That's either heaven or hell. And the only difference between the two is whether or not you are in Christ and so you need to understand that you are a helpless sinner and that you cannot save yourself and that your righteousness is not acceptable to God and that you have rebelled against Him and that you are undone. You need to not only know that in your mind, but you need to feel that deep within your heart And then you need to understand that Jesus is perfect and that he is righteous. And that in love he came from heaven to earth to live in place of and to die for sinners like you. And that Jesus, when he went to that cross, paid for all of the sins of all of his people. And that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He rose again and he's alive today. And if you see your desperate condition and you see the beauty of Christ... Call upon Jesus, for whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Are you in Christ? That is the most important question. Father, today we thank you for allowing us to study you. And, and even though, Lord, we have fallen so far short today in who you are because you are so, Lord, unfathomable. Lord, you are so incomprehensible. Lord, even today, if we even were on the fringes, we thank you, Lord, that we learned a little bit more about you. Thank you, Lord, that you, uh, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you are committed to your people being joined to Christ. And Lord, we who have been joined to Christ, thank you that we understand it a little bit better now. And we thank you that we are in this secure position. And Father, it is our prayer for those that are not in Christ that they would come to know your Son, whom to know is life eternal. So Lord, we thank you for allowing us to gather here today and to study these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.